Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. It's great to have you with us. So today we are in Mark again, Mark 9, verses 38 through 50. What is interesting about this is that they seem to be really kind of disjointed pieces that Mark puts together. And if you compare the kind of um, cross-reference to Matthew and Luke, you see that they're not all included together in those particular books. So uh, it's I think it's easy to kind of disregard their the, the their togetherness like and and but i think maybe it's important that mark does that so alan's going to pull these apart for us um and help us think about maybe how they work together yeah and you know i will share with you guys what i shared with christy that i have wrestled with this passage for a long time even even back in the 90s when i taught this class at seminary i don't know that i really quite had a handle on how to um interpret this passage coherently in Mark's gospel. And so um, uh, I think I think in pre- preparation for today, I've, I've, I've hit upon something that was new for me. And so I've, I've been, I'm learning myself on this one. Uh, as you said, I mean, uh, at first glance, our text for today seems to be a collection of unrelated episodes and sayings from Jesus' ministry. But if we read them through the context that Mark puts them in, in his gospel, in which the previous episode concerns the disciples' argument about who was the greatest, and Jesus' answer regarding being servant of all and welcoming a child who would have been the least of the least of these, the lectionary reading for today, putting them all together in this passage, might make more sense to us. And so we begin with the episode of John the Summoners of Zebedee reporting to Jesus that they had seen someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, the form of address John uses is didaskale, teacher, and it's not only the common form of address Jesus' disciples used for him. It was also the way, I found this interesting, this is also the way the Jewish leaders addressed him. And so, you know, it doesn't reflect any great insight, I think, on their part. Mm-hmm. And, and by contrast, you know, Jesus constantly refers to himself as the Son of Man. And, you know, I think it just seems obvious that they didn't know what to make of that, and so they resorted to the rather neutral uh, term, teacher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what we, what we should see here is that... Um, you know, the crux of what's going on is that this unnamed person was not following us, or in other words, was not among mm-hmm. their group of disciples. And um, uh, this, I think, seems to tie into the whole question of greatness and right. the sense of self-importance. Right, right. exactly, because the disciples should be the one doing Well, that. they're the hand-picked, exactly. you know, ones yeah. to accompany him, right? Yeah. And, and the verb that is used here, they were not following us, is akolutheo. And that's the one Jesus uses to call his disciples to follow mm-hmm. him. And the fact that John used this term as opposed, there were other options in the New Testament Greek. Um, it suggests to me that he was thinking of their group as the ones who were the truly following mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we have to keep in mind here that Jesus had other followers throughout Jewish territory who did not accompany him on his mm-hmm. travels. And, you know, Paul says, for example, that when Jesus appeared to the disciples, there were 500. Right. 
Yeah. Right? Right. So where did they come from, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. So it yeah. seems that Jesus had followers throughout the country. Uh, they just didn't all accompany him. And so, again, I think this relates to the disciples' own notions about their own self-importance in the coming kingdom. But here, notice, you know, we're used to thinking of Peter as being the one who makes these kinds of statements. And here we have another member of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, who demonstrates a serious failure to understand what Jesus was about. Mm -hmm. And basically, Jesus reminds him that there were others who were out there doing deeds of power in my name besides the group that accompanied him and that whoever is not against us is for us. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, that's that's what we see here is these other people doing it, and um, um, they're kind of horror. I mean, they try to stop. They try to stop them from doing right. it. Right. Yeah. And, and I wonder yeah. if it's almost jealousy or if it's it's just a sense of misplaced oh, uh, self-importance. self-importance. We're the hand-picked, we're we're the the hand-picked, hand-picked ones to accompany Jesus. Mm-hmm. Only we can do this. Only we can do this. Yeah. Yeah. And and so how does Jesus respond? What happens next? Well, uh, he, he basically continues by reinforcing his previous teaching about being last mm-hmm. of all and servant of all with the saying that whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. Now, this saying probably circulated independently. So here we're, we're seeing that, you know, this is a collection of episodes and sayings that probably were originally independent, um, as did several parts of our passage for today. And they were grouped together probably either by the oral tradition or by Mark or his source. So, I mean, we have we have three options here. Perhaps Mark's source, perhaps the original oral tradition, and perhaps Mark himself. Mm-hmm. But in this context, I think these, these sayings grouped together serve to remind the disciples again that humble service, offering a cup of water to drink, is the paradigm for the disciples to follow, not thoughts of greatness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of a first little piece. It kind of sits on its own, and then we have something else that happens. Right. So we move on then to the next part of the passage. And the next part has to do with causing one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, that is to stumble in their faith. Is that... Does that reflect back to the children, the, the small child, or not well, necessarily? Well, some, some think so. Uh, okay. um, Adela Yarbrough-Collins, in her, in her commentary on Mark in the Hermoniah series, thinks that's the case. I'm not so sure. I, I relate it more to the idea of Paul's notion of the weak believers mm-hmm. versus the strong believers, and uh, that, that seems to make more sense to mm-hmm. me here. So... Um, Again, I think, though, that this calls attention to the manner in which the building blocks of the gospel tradition were arranged. Very likely, we're looking at a thematic arrangement, not a chronological arrangement. So these aren't events that took place, you know, sequentially, but rather Mm -hmm. um, the idea of being servant of all, the idea of giving a cup of water, and the idea of these little ones who believe in me could very naturally have been grouped around the theme of service Mm -hmm. versus greatness. Mm And so specifically here, uh, Jesus warns his disciples against scandalise uh, or causing a fellow believer to stumble. And, and the question here is, is with reference to what? Because this verb can be used in several different ways in the New Testament. But here it seems to be to stumble and fall away from faith. And we find this idea reflected in other places in Mark's gospel, and especially in Paul, where he refers to the weak disciples and, and the question of eating foods offered to idols in, in second, first and second Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Now, in response, then, Jesus says that it would be better for you if a great millstone, and it's literally the millstone of a donkey. Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> so if you're translating from the Greek and you, re- and you, and you come up with that, no, you, you didn't miss it. It's, that's what it says. Okay. okay. <laughs> if, a, if a great millstone or a millstone of a donkey were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, and obviously this is a fate that anyone would seek oh, to avoid it. Oh, this is hor- a horrible Any image. cost, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the thought of, 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 of being drowned in the sea this way is just horrible, right? Oh. Uh, and in Mark's gospel, basically, Jesus is reminding his disciples who are preoccupied with their own greatness at the moment that their service to these little ones who believe in me is far more important mm-hmm. than, than their notions of greatness. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to note that this description of the punishment for causing one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble and fall away from faith is figurative, right? Nobody, nobody has come up with an image of the afterlife that is perpetually drowning right. in a sea, you know, with a millstone around your neck. Right. So my, part of my question is, why then would we take the next image of being tossed into a burning trash dump as... A Good literal, point. a literal oh, description oh, of the that, afterlife. That's a really, right? that's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, my just reading this and from your description, my thought is this is just to to, to really get us to think about. Um, it's a, almost a shock value kind of yes. a, a kind of statement to get us to think about how important this is that yes. we are not causing people yes. to stumble. And I think about, you know, when I was reading this, I was thinking about a young woman at my church who um, really thought she was doing the right thing and, 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 and being a good follower of Christ and, and made a choice that actually was not the best. And so a whole bunch of people came down on her mm-hmm. and, you know, then she ran away from the church yeah. and she surprise, had this, this whole shame culture that hit her. Yeah. And it reminded me of this because yeah. it was like, yeah. they needed to handle that much, much differently. She, she didn't understand she didn't understand the choices made, and, and I think that happens a lot. Right, mm-hmm. right. All right. So, I mean, obviously, I think the image of, of having a millstone around your neck and being thrown into the sea means you want to avoid this at any cost. At you any want cost. to avoid causing oh. someone like that to fall away for their faith or to, or to, or to stumble in their faith at, 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 any, at all costs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. So... <sighs> I think, again, we have to note that the next segment probably also originated separately from Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. verse 42. Uh, Notice that here the challenge is not causing another person to stumble in faith, but rather the challenge is something that causes you to stumble and fall into sin. Mm -hmm. And that is another use of the word scandalizo in the New Testament. So... um, Probably, I mean, although this is kind of a different topic, it was probably joined with Mark nine forty two because of the connection with the word scandalizo, mm-hmm. um, um, and so the general notion that your hand might cause you to stumble, or mm-hmm. your foot might cause you to stumble, or your eye might cause you to stumble, is the idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this combination of hand and foot and eye is accidental. In Proverbs, mm-hmm. the hand and the foot and the eye are to be watched carefully that they do not lead one oh, into sin. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you can find that in Proverbs chapter 1 and chapter 4 and chapter 6. Interesting. Now, again, Adela Yarbrough Collins and her Mark commentary gives each of these a sexual interpretation that, that the hand and the foot and, and the eye 
uh, are related to sexual uh, temptations. And th- there's some plausibility there. I-, I see it as a more generic statement I here think, myself uh, in this context. From, from the description and from what we're talking about, that makes more sense to me. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's clear, you know, it, it, these these verses are similar to what you find in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And there, you know, the I is the eye that lusts after someone who is not your spouse, you know? And so, uh, and, and the point is about making effort to every effort to avoid sin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, uh, so, so, uh, you know, I can see, I can, it's not, it's not out, it's not totally out and out, out of uh, the realm of possibility. I just see this more as, you know, in the Proverbs, you know, you're warned against feet that are quick to evil and hands that shed blood. And, you know, your eye can Mm -hmm. be something that that, uh, reflects um, um, uh, an arrogant attitude Mm -hmm, or a mm -hmm. rebellious attitude, you know. And so um, I, I think there's some good basis for interpreting Jesus sayings in light of the wisdom tradition in, in mm-hmm. Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Oddly, you know, um, when I was prepping this, this is the kind of thing one thought Calvin would jump on and he actually does not. So that was kind wow. of an interesting, hmm, uh, at least not in the commentaries, right? Yeah. 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 Well, and you know, I think we need to understand here, you know, when, when Jesus says, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, cast out, cast away your eye. This is not meant to be taken literally. You know, a one-handed thief can still steal. Right, right. right. And, and a blind man can still lust, you know, if that's what that's about. I mean, it, the, 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 the temptation to sin comes from the heart. It doesn't come from right, a particular body right. part. And, you know, Origen, if you're familiar with his story at all, you know that he yes. found out that this was literally not true. You know, this right. was not the point of Jesus saying. So um, I think it's important for us to recognize that, again, this Jesus is, 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 is using language for effect. Here. Right. He's trying yeah. to impress upon them the importance of doing everything they can. You know, avoid, avoid this at all costs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, let's, let's move on. What's it, what happens next? So the reason for the advice that, that if the hand or the foot of the eye cause you to sin, you're better to cut it off or cast it out, is that it is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands or two feet or two eyes and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. That's verse 43, and you have essentially the same thing repeated in verse 45 and 47. I, I think it's significant here that in this passage, entering life, in verses 43 and 45, Mm -hmm. is used synonymously with entering the kingdom of God. And, you know, we've made this Mm -hmm. case as we've looked at John's gospel that eternal life is basically uh, sort of an interpretation of what it means to enter the kingdom of God for maybe a Gentile audience that's not familiar with that. And so here we have this connection made very obviously for us. Uh, and so it's the it's the life of the kingdom that that Jesus is talking about when he says entering life. Yeah. And of course, I think the implication is very clear: entering eternal life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and then talk to us a little bit about then the unquenchable fire. Well, like, that and comes hell, next. right? And hell. Go to yes. hell, and and unfortunately, 
the English Bible tradition has been uh, unduly influenced by the King James Version. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, from the days of 1611 until now, the vast majority of the English Bible versions translate this passage, go to hell. And yet, I, I think it's important for us to note that in the Greek text, the place of unquenchable fire that Jesus refers to is not Hades, which in and of itself does not necessarily translate into our modern understanding of hell, because in, in a lot of um, contexts in the Greek tradition, Hades was where everyone went. And in the Hebrew Bible, Sheol, mm-hmm. which is, is translated with the Greek word Hades a lot of times in the Septuagint, is simply the place where a place of the dead. Right, right. And, and it's the place where people are waiting to be resurrected in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So the word is not Hades here, but it's Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to recognize, again, we're looking at a metaphorical uh, saying here. Uh, The Valley of Hinnom basically was a ravine uh, that ran along, that runs along, it still runs along the west and south side of Jerusalem. So I'm going to clarify this. So the translation that we're used to is that they are using this this Greek word, henna, as the same as Hades. Gehenna. Gehenna. Gehenna, they translate as hell. As hell. They translate it as hell. Okay, and there, there is some basis for this in, in Jewish tradition and Christian tradition, but I'm, arg- I'm pushing against that. Okay, okay. I think we should translate it Gehenna. Gehenna, okay. Uh, myself, and I'll, I'll, I'll okay. explain okay. that. Okay, just wanted to make, yeah. it, make it clear that this is a really kind of interesting nuance that has really impacted our understanding of it, this verse. It has impacted our understanding of this verse, and it has impacted our understanding of the afterlife. Right. Definitely. Right. So so the, the word is Gehenna, and it refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which was a, a ravine that runs uh, along the west and south side of Jerusalem. It became a negative symbol in the Hebrew Bible because the kings of Judah engaged in child sacrifice to Molech there, mm-hmm. and so that was an abomination. Uh, its role as a place of punishment begins in the um, sayings of Jeremiah, who renamed it the Valley of Slaughter and predicted it mm-hmm. would be filled with corpses that would become food for scavenging animals during the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Many have also followed the view that it was a place where the trash from the city was constantly being burned uh, in those days. And according to late Jewish apocalyptic literature, the Valley of Hinnom provided the image, well, basically was the image of the place of eternal punishment by fire. And the name Gehenna became the regular designation for the place of eternal punishment Ah. for the wicked in in Jewish apocalyptic Uh Uh literature. And and so it's not, and I think also in the Christian tradition, then this was just simply assumed that this was, you know, they they translated this with the concept of hell, and and it just became this, this, in my opinion, this metaphor for a fate that one would do anything to avoid mm-hmm. became interpreted much more literally mm-hmm. as a place of eternal fire. Mm. Now, among the English translations, only J.B. Phillips and New Testament and, and N.T. Wright in his New Testament for Everyone mm-hmm. and two Catholic versions, the New American Bible and the New Catholic Bible, get this one right, in my opinion, because mm-hmm. they don't translate it as hell. And I, I would argue, you know, 
nobody takes the image of being cast into the sea with a millstone around one's neck as a description, a literal description of the afterlife of the place of punishment for the mm-hmm. wicked dead, right? So why do we take the image of being thrown into a perpetual trash dump, literally, as a description of the afterlife? Uh, I think we're meant to see both of these as metaphors of a fate that one would do anything to avoid. Mm-hmm. And whether or not it refers to a literal hell or not, this I, I don't think we can make that conclusion mm-hmm. based on this passage. Interesting. And and so I would I would argue as I as I do that um, I don't believe that um, the the biblical witness to hell is uh, unambiguous. Um, Hell is something that developed in the course of the early church Mm -hmm. and was finalized in the late medieval period um, um, in in the language of poetry and drama. And, and, um, you know, then from then it was sort of pretty much set in stone in in the Christian imagination Mm -hmm. and in Christian theology. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, May, maybe we should view that as, as, a, as a true picture of the afterlife, but the Bible doesn't answer that question. That's something we have to answer theologically mm-hmm. and, and not based on this passage, Based on example. this passage, yeah. which is, I think, a tendency for people to do. In people fact, will point to this. That's uh, right. Calvin will use this. Yes, um, of course. In, in, his, in, in, in his descriptions, although... Calvin handles it kind of interesting, as we'll see. But but yeah, he does. He mm-hmm. he, he does. He, and he also so do stuff. many, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, I think it might be a case of eisegesis to some extent coming in for many many people. It's well, if there's this place of heaven of this you know eternal life, well, there has doesn't there have to be the opposite? I mean, mm-hmm. I think, and especially when you're coming out of the medieval period, where that's how you that's your only explanation for really evil mm-hmm. um and uh it's it's unfortunate but it's so ingrained that to, to process out of that really is a shifted worldview i mean i mean we're, we're even talking about a world where you know up light and you know down is if fi- you know they, 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 their whole worldview is shaped that way and right. so well and and you know that began in um, Jewish apocalyptic Absolutely. literature that was kind of uh, right. contemporaneous with with the New Testament, right, right, and and so you see some influences of that in the New Testament. Obviously, it influences the early church, and and but it doesn't really come into its full form until the medieval church and uh, the, the the late medieval church, mm-hmm. and uh, you know people people have this notion and they don't realize it's formulated by by the poetry, by the drama, by by the literature of the mm-hmm. of the right. late medieval era, and not by the Bible. But because because the English Bible translates this hell, right. they assume then, that it is formed really, by the Bible. It's really really easy to, to to go there. If I'm reading this and I'm looking through through translations, will the translations lead me to Valley of Hinnon, or will it just say? If, if I'm looking at the word, no. will it just say hell? It'll probably It'll just say tell hell. me hell. Like I said, um, the vast majority of English yeah. Bible versions say hell. And, but I'm just wondering, is it that next layer of research that I would have to do to, to be triggered to notice that, right? Is it a new right. person? Is a new, well, is a newer? this is more a knowledge of the history of theology and a recognition right. of what's going on here exactly. with this biblical text. Yeah. So if you're interested in more information on this, there's a fellow named Jeffrey Burton Russell who has uh, written a number of books 
on uh, Satan and hell in early Christian tradition and um, in antiquity uh, and in um, the modern world as well and in the, and in the in the Middle Ages as well. And he has another book. He has a book that's called The Prince of Darkness that kind of summarizes all of it. That is a pretty good um, pointer to sort of how all of this developed in a historical fashion. That's interesting, and and I think definitely, um, I think it's one of those places where it's time for us to maybe continue to try to, to change or to slowly impact the the shift away from where the, this is gone. Well, again, to me, what Jesus is doing here is he is using two different metaphors. Right. Millstone around your neck and thrown into the sea, yep. thrown into a burning pat, trash dump as a fate that someone would do would avoid at all cost, right? Right. right. And if we don't take the first one literally as a description of the afterlife, why do why we take, take the second one? Why would take the second one? Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. That's my question. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to okay. the next segment. Right. The next segment was probably already also originally independent um, and was joined to this passage, again, because of the theme of judgment and the use of the word fire. And again, I think it's important for us to just back up just a bit and note, note that it was common practice in Jewish biblical interpretation to string together sayings that were connected verbally or thematically in the way that the right. gospel tradition seems to do here. So the saying that everyone will be salted with fire is, in the words of Joel Marcus in his commentary on Mark, perhaps the most enigmatic saying of Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) That just doesn't make much sense. And I know we're all tempted to interpret this in light of uh, what, what what Jesus says in Matthew 5.13. That is not what's going on here. Um, And, you know, a lot of people will try to try to, to take up the uses of salt in the ancient world for preserving food, for sanitation, uh, for cleaning, you know, um, uh, the body or, or, or wounds or things like that. This is a this is an outlier in the biblical text. This is the only biblical occurrence of the of the phrase being salted with fire. It does not occur anywhere else in the whole Bible. Although there is a reference to the salt of Sodom in the Talmud, mm-hmm. which kind of has a similar kind of tone to it mm-hmm. because Sodom obviously was destroyed by fire. Mm-hmm. I, I think it seems clear that... Um, um, uh, this reference refers to final judgment. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the question relates as to whether being salted with fire refers to the destruction of the wicked, as above, uh, is, is suggested by being cast into the sea with a millstone or being thrown mm-hmm. into a burning trash dump, or whether it is something that purges the righteous. And fire has both functions in the New Testament, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think I think maybe it's intentionally ambiguous to allow for both possibilities. Mm, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, we have more salt in the next saying. Yeah. So the next saying, salt is good, but if salt has lost its salt, saltiness, how can you season it? it it's a well-known. Basically, adage, right, and and it's also a well-known saying because in in Matthew five thirteen it is connected with Jesus' statement that you are the right. salt of the earth, and I think that has influenced a lot of people to try to read you. Everyone must be salted with fire 
in light of you are the salt, right. salt of the earth, right. and which is a mistake, I think. Okay. And so if the readings of the warnings against sin against the, against the backdrop of wisdom literature is correct, as I mentioned before, that mm-hmm. the hand and the foot and the eye are from, are from the wisdom literature, this may also uh, help us to understand the call to have salt in yourselves in terms of living wisely in view of the coming judgment, because there is some, there is some background for that in, in uh, biblical literature and, mm-hmm. Jewish, and Jewish, in the Jewish context. And I think, again, that would also help us to understand the final admonition to be at peace with one another, since living wisely makes for peace. And I mm-hmm. think of James 3, 17 and 18, where right. wisdom is peaceable, and James mm-hmm. says that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. So, you know, as you mentioned, we're dealing with a collection of sayings in Mark's gospel mm-hmm. that seem to be disjointed at first glance. But when we think of them as addressing the conflict among the disciples regarding who would be greatest mm-hmm. among them, I think we can see a pattern yes. emerging. Yes. They're to see themselves not in competition with Jesus' other disciples, but working together mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that probably has some implications for us today, right? Right, right. They are to beware the effects of their arrogance on believers who might be susceptible to stumbling in mm-hmm. faith. And they are to beware all possible temptations to stumble yep. themselves yep. and rather they're to live wisely in view of the coming judgment. Yes. That will be a time apparently that in Jesus mind that will reveal the true character of all people. And thus Jesus disciples are to practice now the way of life that leads to the life of the kingdom yeah. of God. Yeah. And so again, I, I'm sort of taking this, this, this kind of takes uh, um, uh, these sayings, not only in light of this, the situation of the dispute about greatness and, and uh, Jesus' teaching about service, but rather also it, it sort of interprets some of, the, some of the details of this passage in light of the wisdom tradition in, in the Hebrew Bible. And, and there are many who see Jesus as having been influenced by that wisdom tradition. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And uh, I think this is a brilliant way of looking at this. I, I hope everyone else feels like, yeah, this is the best kind of handle I've ever really gotten on this. Well, it's the best handle I've ever gotten onto it, and I'm sure there's probably room for growth, but I, I hope that it's helpful. I think very helpful. All right. Well, we'll be back and look at a couple things in our church history. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and it's Christy's turn now to help us um, see how the Reformers um, took a look at this uh, challenging passage. And so uh, let's see what kind of light she can shed on that from from their uh, comments. Sure. And I pretty much looked at Calvin's commentaries today, and I think what's really interesting is um, some of the things that Alan identified Calvin had kind of started to pick up on, um, which I thought was... Uh, particularly ahead <laughs> of times, if you will. But he well, really... and as we've discussed, you know, Calvin basically Calvin's main method for interpreting scripture was to interpret scripture right. in light of scripture. Exactly, and that is my that's where I start. Right now, in our day and time, we know you have to go beyond that, right? Right, you right. have to look exactly. at you have to look at extra biblical literature. You right. have to look at you know Greek literature. You have to consider the theological developments right. and right. all that kind of stuff. But I mean, yeah. that's a, still a basic exactly. standard approach. Exactly. So he he noted, hey, in Mark in particular, and he noted that this was unique to Mark because he um, interpreted this with this um, 
this idea of who is the greatest. Oh, um, oh really? It, so he, he acknowledged that theme that had come before um, that now was part of what he's suggesting. Look, um, some of the conclusions Alan had made about this, he actually saw within this passage how him. he was using it. So yeah, it was really, really interesting. That well, I should have conferred. Have... I could, should have conferred with Calvin back in the <laughs> days when I was trying to make sense of this in my seminary yeah, class. Yeah, um, and I think um, one of the other places that. Uh, he uses this in an interesting way is we do see this passage show up in the institutes. Um, and, you know, we just talked about this view of heaven and hell version. And he, he, he really references Mark 9, 43 through 49 as an example of the reprobate. Oh, um, so those, he uses it as a, as a proof text, I guess, for kind the, of, of eternal for the death. notion of, mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of eternal punishment. They are gnawed by the eternal worm and burn in extinguishable fire. So he actually picks up on what we just talked about was maybe a problem with this image. I, it, it came, it, what came in mind to me, as opposed to, because Calvin was not using the King James, obviously he's mm-hmm. pre-King James, he's using the Geneva Bible. And right. I, I am curious how the Geneva Bible interprets it but i don't know i doubt that it would be any different myself i haven't i didn't look at the geneva Bible, yeah. but i doubt that it would be any different yeah so and, but in any way of course still the worldview of and calvin and luther and, and all of our reformers is still this kind of dualistic world um, well and you know we didn't mention it but but that's that saying where their worm does not die and the fire is unquenchable you know that's a quote from isaiah 66 mm-hmm. so that's the last chapter of isaiah and and there it's talking about judgment and of course those who those who are are blessed are the ones who who go into the kingdom of god but those who are condemned in the judgment are slaughtered and in this verse, Isaiah 66, 24, those who are blessed look upon the bodies of those who have been slain. And then where it says, where their worm does not die and the fire right. is not quenched. So it doesn't, it, you know, it's talking about looking on dead bodies right, here. Not, right. not talking about people in eternal punishment. <laughs> right. Which is not how Calvin, obviously, is right. referencing it. with. So kind of interesting. Um, but I didn't spend most of my time there because as I reflected on this passage as a whole, it, it reminded me of how much the his, in, in history of the church, this tradition to attach church ris- ritual to scripture and mm. often in ways that don't make sense. And so one of the main things that we see during Reformation was to kind of rid the church from this magic, from these really inappropriate uses of, of elements in the church that, that kind of go the wrong direction. And that was huge for Calvin. Um, and remember... Perhaps like the incense that was being mm-hmm. burned as a symbol for the Absolutely. presence of God. Absolutely. And, yeah. um, and so as Calvin's, you know, Calvin's main thing was, look, we want to use practices that are scriptural, called for in scripture. You know, the Lord's Supper, that is obvious, right? The Baptism, Prayer. that's obvious. We're asking those things. But these other these other rituals that surround it, including all of the, you know, fancy pyramids used by the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. Church, all of the, you know, all of the images of saints and, and even the icons. Mm-hmm. Calvin wanted to get rid of it. Um, so I think what's really, really interesting here um, is the what occurred to me was the use of salt in here. And I thought salt has become part of the Roman Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, in its in, in terms of how it's used in, in the liturgy. And so this whole concept of salt becomes kind of embedded as to its, its, its use, its, its kind of magic effects on the church. And so what you see um, during the medieval 
time of the medieval church is this use of salt and liturgical practices. It was used specifically in baptism, and they actually put it on the tongue along with... Really? Yes. Um, and So they were being washed on the outside and cleansed on the inside. Yeah, it's a preservative, <laughs> a reminder of God's work. It was also sometimes used for the catechumens. So... Um, with salted bread, and mm. so it's this idea that you know you, it, it could affect, if you will, that positive um, transformation, uh, maybe preservative in you. Well, yeah. preserving God's goodness in you. Mm-hmm. So what it, what an interesting space. Mm. Um, well, I mean that makes sense. I mean you know if you have if you have a uh, um, you know a, a Eucharistic bread and wine that uh, that basically the bread conveys grace to you then why can't salt convey god's preservation to exactly you? <laughs> so this is a big thing so uh for the reformers this was something they obviously would want to get rid of mm-hmm. um this is to discontinue the practice but um they did see this they did understand that salt was a preservative in the passage and um um so but calvin saw it more as metaphorical um, for the um, human response to Jesus, where disciples should be purified and not like live on sin. That's kind of how, what he talked about. Mm. Um, he tied it back to Leviticus and the grain offering that salt should be uh, offered um, with the offering as well. Well, and, and that is significant background. I didn't mention it, but um, mm-hmm. you know, Leviticus 2.13 mentions the grain offering should be offered with salt, mm-hmm. and it seems mm-hmm. like that is sort of a way of ensuring that this grain offering is mm-hmm. pure and, right. and in God's sight. Yeah. And so, ding, 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 what is salt for, for Calvin? That's the word. <laughs> of course. That's, that's the of gospel. Of course. That's what cleanses our lives. Right, right. right. So <laughs> you should be living sacrifices, but preserved with salt, that salt is the, the word. word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he said <laughs> everyone will be salted with fire, but I, I, I see where Calvin's yeah, going with that. Yeah, um, And so there's also an emphasis on that those who are salted are those chosen to hear it. Mm. So there's an interesting tie to wow. the elect and the doctrine of predestination. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, so salt is good, but if salt has lots of saltiness, how can you season it? This is kind of a, a, an interesting deal as well, because uh, this is an idea that men can, or, you know, human beings can lose their saltiness by their own carelessness, which is interesting. So, it gives people some agency, if you will, hmm. and, 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 and people often say, well, if you are part of the elect, you are automatically saved, but there's some agency here that you mm-hmm. have a choice to ignore God's word, which, is, which people often don't give Calvin credit for. I, I just read, a, just read a, a simpler thing the other day, this Adam Hamilton who does some kind of um, study books for, for congregations, and they're, they're okay, but he really he puts Calvin in a corner. And well, like, most people do. Yeah. I mean, they simplify Calvinism they simplify and make it as if everything is already predetermined and you have no choice. Exactly. And that's really, Calvin's deeper than that. And he said this, this, and he uses this as an example of, look, you, you can, you have a choice to turn away from, mm-hmm. from God's word here. And, he, and this is an example where you see that. In well, and I, I guess, you know, that would reflect his pastoral experience as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's 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 interesting there that you seem to have some agency to accept God's grace. Mm. 
I, I find it fascinating that that I mean I, I totally understand where where Calvin is going with that with that you know in terms of his line of thinking, but I find it interesting that he associates that with the metaphor of salt in this passage. Yeah, I know, isn't that? <laughs> I, I you know as I said before, I don't really think that's what Jesus had in mind, but but. Um, um, uh, you know, I give kudos, Calvin kudos for coherency, you yeah, know, consistency. <laughs> it's interesting. So the second piece I decided to look at was this practice of exorcism. Now, we didn't talk about that in Adam and Alan's section so much, but right at the very beginning was, of course, this, um, this exorcism that these followers that weren't the disciples were trying to do. I mean, that was the whole thing. And, and you know, for us modern-day people, you know, our eyes kind of... Uh, kind of twist and we kind of wonder, well, exorcism, that's mm-hmm. kind of a strange concept. And in the modern day, we don't really see it as that, but yet it was very much part of the ancient church and, and yes. it still is part of the Roman Catholic tradition. In fact, I've read a few pieces where it's becoming more more popular again. Really? Yeah, which is interesting. Um, but really exorcism we think of in terms of the pre-modern world and a world when you don't have science to explain behavior of people. Um, well, and I think, I think you know, you've mentioned several times the world of the Middle Ages was a world that was surrounded by death. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. Uh, whether exactly. from wars that, that lasted for decades, if not centuries, or from plague right. or whatever. You know, right. this was, this, these people, people saw evil and death on every yeah. hand. And I, I must say this, they, they do did believe that people were possessed. And mm-hmm. we saw that in, in the Bible, and they believed it true, was true to their day. And even as we move to reformers who, you know, we've talked about them being early modern. So they're moving, they're not yet in our modern age of science, but they're kind of moving out of the medieval age. And so, but they, they fully accept that people can be possessed by evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, believe that that needs to be eradicated from them, but they don't believe in exorcism, mm. which is interesting. Huh. Um, and so uh, it, this has some interesting, interesting spaces. And I, I didn't go into um, the kinds of possession. There's, there's the kinds of possession that you can't do anything about. Really? Right? That, it, that you, are, you are a victim, if you will. Okay. And so those types of demons can be gotten rid of, um, at least theoretically through prayer. And, and that's in right. the Catholic tradition. No, 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 that's a reform. Oh, that's that would reform. be, and, okay. and Luther, that, that your best chance to get rid of that is through prayer. Okay. But there are other kinds of evil that overtake you, that you bring on, that you accept. Oh, yeah. And there's really no way out of that. Really? Yeah. I mean. No ex- repentance. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So that's where we get rich trials, witchcraft trials, that kind My of thing. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. So that kind of takes its ugly little turn mm. away, um, <laughs> away. But in terms of um, exorcism itself, there's a couple examples in the Lutheran tradition of attempts to do this, but it's pretty much, pretty much something that's done only in the Roman Catholic tradition. What's interesting there, the Roman Catholics are actually going to use exorcism and the success of exorcism to gain people that had become Protestant back into the Roman Catholic wow. tradition. Of course. Yeah. And so... Well, and that's kind of what, the, you know, their sort of miraculous signs mm-hmm. still still does that today. Exactly. Right? There's a miracle. This happened. And so you get people in Elizabethan England. Um, and Elizabethan England is kind of an interesting time because 
she allows for what's known as the Elizabethan settlement. Mm. So remember, you've got this this kind of raging back and forth between the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic and who's in charge. And Elizabeth, Whether you're Protestant or Catholic, and they were killing each other over exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And without going into that whole history, when Elizabeth comes to the throne, remember her legitimacy as queen is that she is um, as the, is the do- a legitimate daughter of Henry VIII, and so she has to uphold being the head of the Church of England. Right. Um, however, she also recognizes she's coming on the heels of her sister Mary, um, who was Roman Catholic, who had reestablished, you know, she was known as Bloody Mary in history and, um, for, you know, the execution of so many Protestants. So she knows she's coming into basically a civil war kind of atmosphere in England. And so she establishes a settlement which allows Roman Catholics to remain Roman Catholic and allows for those who are um, um, a- Anglican to remain Anglican Church of England. And therefore, um, they, they, they coincide. They coexist. Her, they coexist, wow. excuse me. And, and so it's this interesting time and, and really that was able to done in the figure of Elizabeth I. I mean, it's a kind of amazing yeah. queen she was. But what is interesting um, about all that is there's still this underneath you know, process of, but we still want to get people back into being Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. And there was also uh, Elizabeth is known as the Virgin Queen, mm-hmm. um, and she has no children. Right. So there's still this what happens next mm-hmm. um, after Elizabeth. And, and because of that, there is this great kind of, you know, is a settlement just a temporary kind right. of thing, which we know it is. We have the English Civil War, and we get, you know, a whole big which, mess. Which also led to the gunpowder plot and Guy Fawkes Day Yay! in England, right? Yeah, all, the, all those things, right, um, come into play. So what an interesting little piece here mm. that this exorcism yeah. is used as, wow. like, proof of Roman Catholic. Sort of the Roman Catholic marketing marketing plan to 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 get protestants to come back (laughs) what an interesting piece because they have you know they have obviously have the true power of god and that they can do this you know and i I have to i have to agree with the reformers on this it seems like it attributes an awful lot of magical power to a priest to be able to do that oh yeah it was interesting Uh, that reminds me so if it's if it's a um sacrament and the priest is not uh, and the priest has maybe maybe fallen himself. It, it's still the power of God right. that's doing this. Right. Not the same with exorcism. So, <laughs> oh, so the priest has to be pure yeah. and holy and yeah. in a state or of grace. Or it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which well, is that's really that's a, that's a convenient explanation for for why it didn't always work. Exa- I would say <laughs> exactly. So, isn't that interesting? Now, that's a little bit like the 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 faith healers these days who say, well, well, you know, if you're not healed, then you just didn't have enough faith. Enough faith. Exactly. It's just a good. Ex- so what? I mean, this is anyway really interesting stuff that tells you, I think, a lot about the the space and time of that, and that, that the shifting to a more modern worldview. Um, the shift that we're not fully there, right? They still very much mm-hmm. believe in 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 a, a power of evil, right? And mm-hmm. they they still don't understand. Um, understand the medicine or the the science of why yeah. the people might seem possessed well and you know it it seems to me that um i, I mean i know that's not just true of Cat- the catholic church today but in in the catholic church particularly uh 
but among and others, you know, there is that sense still of you know there is great evil in the world mm-hmm. today. Oh yes, and and you have to beware, or it will overtake you. Absolutely, and, and you really have to be on your guard because it's lurking around every corner right. to snatch you up. And that's not my understanding of of God, and it's not my understanding mm-hmm. of the world, and it's not my understanding yeah. of, of of what salvation looks like yeah, for exa- the believer. Exactly, and and <laughs> you know we hear that quite a lot, and and mm-hmm. it's like. I hear more. I hear some people, and they seem more concerned about fighting evil than serving God. Right? You know right. what I mean? It's like, what? Who is your God? Right? right? You know? Yeah. Um, it's like they're more influenced by the devil, and than they are by God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, I think these are kind of interesting pieces, but um, I, I think we're seeing, you know, a slow shift to a broader understanding of Scripture, um, and I think. Um, we're starting to see um, how Roman Catholic practices, they try to make, they really have to take them into into account, think how it impacts the church, and then think about, and think about how scripture has been kind of misunderstood by the practices, if you will. The practices took a life of their own, really beyond scripture, and then all of a sudden you have to step back and say, okay, but this doesn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot going on here that helps us shift from this kind of medieval worldview to this early modern view. And, and I guess for us to think about, and why I, I point this out is some folks in our modern day want to go back to Reformation Church, but we have to remember they were part of a historical process, right. and so are we. And so we need to think of, okay, so now what do we know today? How does today's world work, and how does our faith work in yeah. today's world? For us, it's a matter of being faithful in our context. They exactly. did what, they did their best to be faithful in their, in context. their context. We have to be faithful right. in our context. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So... Um, well, we'll be back. We'll find something else to talk about. All right. Thanks, All right, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And as we think about these two segments, which our two segments would seem just very disjointed, maybe as much as our initial look at these passages, you know, we came to think that both of us have reflected on processes of, of reading Scripture incorrectly. Um, and what does that mean when we do that, and how does it impact the church? And so I think I'm going to let Alan take it away here. Yeah, you know, uh, you guys know that I, I started my career in the, Baptist, in the Southern Baptist world, and I was a seminary professor, and I taught, you may or may not know that I taught not only New Testament and Greek, but I also taught... Um, hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. And, you know, one of the sayings in that setting was, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. <laughs> Which, <laughs> Which, if we go back to Adam Hamilton, who I just mentioned, is one of his, what he calls half-truths, because that's really a problem. It, right? it is a half-truth, because really what that means is, I believe it, and that settles it. You're assuming that God's that if you you're assuming that your understanding of, mm-hmm. of the Bible means that God says this, you, you, you know you're not really you, you're not really investigating that you're not really um, uh, studying the Scripture right. to make sure you're understanding it rightly. You know you're just assuming something right, based right, on right. you know the surface meaning meaning of the text. So you know and and, and this passage particularly is just fraught with <laughs> all kinds of ways to do that. I mean, as we saw in the first place, you know. It's easy to, if you just read this on the surface of things, you know, 
these these sayings and episodes that are brought together seem to be gobbledygook you know they're mm-hmm. all jumbled up and, and how do they relate to one another right. so you have to start with by practicing one of the again fundamental you know age old i mean this this goes back to ancient jewish interpretation uh principles of how to read the bible rightly is that as you interpret a you interpret a text in light of its context and so you know we have to interpret this passage these passages have been collected together by the gospel tradition or by mark's source or by mark for a reason, mm-hmm. and I think is a reason why they follow the dispute about greatness. I think this continues that that thought, and so that gives us one interpretive clue to how to understand these uh, texts rightly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, so the thing that we hear mostly these days is, well, I read the Bible literally, yeah. which has the implication that your interpretation is um, is insufficient or it's defective in some way. Right. I right. read the Bible literally, and what that means is, whatever the words mean to me, just on a surface reading of right. it, that's what the that's Bible what means. means. And there's so many, oh my goodness, I keep thinking of, 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 of so many problems with this. I, I have a neighbor who's decided, not only does she read it literally, but she only reads the King James Version, and mm. the King James Version is the only right trans, I mean, like it's more right than the Greek itself. And, and I remember in a conversation, I said, well, you know, what about the Greek tradition? What about, nope, this, it's, it's like, it's like mm. they believe there's some kind of divine intercession that makes that English, that I've English encountered version that. translation. I've encountered correct. that myself. Uh, you know, that not only, not only, so, 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 you know, uh, part of that argument goes even to the extent of saying that the current critical text of the Greek New Testament, which we use, the scholarly was it a scholarly reconstruction trying to reconstruct the original to the best of our ability. That's not the true version. The true version is the one that God providentially allowed to survive and to be used by the translators in 1611. So it was the majority mm-hmm. text that 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 you know uh, was the one that God chose to be translated and not only that but but some of these folks will argue that the king james translators were themselves inspired in their translation and 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 so you know and the implication then is and the holy spirit is inspiring my interpretation so it cannot be wrong it cannot be wrong and (laughs) wow do you have a mess right oh my yeah because i mean you know um, um, whenever you invoke divine authority for yourself, you know, right. that just kind of ends all conversation. How right. can you even, how can you even discuss that? Right. Exactly. Because if this is from God, then exactly, you know, okay, well, you guess you're, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and I can't really even have a claim to be. Uh, exactly. Right, it, it, it's, it's really, I, I guess, you know, I keep wondering these folks because if they are going to worship and are they being set right by their pastor then, because they would probably have a different interpret <laughs> right. or do they come with a presupposed, um, do, ideas that have already been planted. There are some churches that advocate this from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, even to the point of there are books out there that, that they, that they, give to their people to read that in, that reinforce this point of view. And it's, uh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, he, here's the thing. Here, here's, the, here's the Achilles heel. How many of them have ever, how many of them do you see are missing a hand? How many of them do you see are missing a foot? Yeah, exactly. How many of them do you see are missing an eye? Exactly. Obviously, they're not taking it that literally. 
Right, 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 exactly. And so this becomes sort of the Achilles heel in that whole approach. And this right. passage is, is a great example of that. You know, so I mentioned Origen. Origen was famously or infamously known to have emasculated himself. If you don't know what that means, look it up. <laughs> he emasculated himself because he thought that, you know, uh, his penis was a member of his body that was leading him into sin. And so he took this literally to cut it off, uh, lest he be led to stumble and fall into sin. And he discovered that lust is a matter of the heart. Mm -hmm. It's not something that is connected with a body part. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and and that, I think if we had been there, and if we had heard Jesus and seen the look in his eyes, we would have known better. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. all we have is the printed word right. on the page. And so right. we don't hear the inflection in his voice. We don't see the look in his eyes, you know. Right, right. I think it would have been obvious to the original hearers that Jesus did not intend for anybody to go chop off their hand or chop off their foot right. or pluck out their eye. Exactly. You know, that yeah. would have been obvious to them. Right. You know, and, and I think also... While the notion that there was this place of punishment for the wicked dead that was a, a, akin to a, a, a per, you know perpetual burning mm-hmm. place in Jewish apocalyptic thinking of that day, right. I think it would have been obvious to them that Jesus wasn't advocating that if they caused you know somebody to stumble, they might have a mill throne, mill, millstone, you know. Uh, around right, their neck right. and be thrown into the sea. He that was that was that it was obvious that that wasn't something that he was thinking was going to literally happen to them. And it was obvious, I think, to them. It would have been right. obvious to them that he wasn't thinking that someone was going to literally take them and bind them and throw them on the burning trash dump in the Valley of Hinnom, you know, to to suffer a gruesome right. death. Exactly. You know, so the worm never dies and the fire's never quenched. Well, you know how how you know if people die by fire they die and right. it doesn't happen eternally right right so yeah. again it just it just doesn't work right in a right. logical way it doesn't work in a, in a, in if you if you look at it below the surface right and i've said it before i'll say it again i believe that that is truly reading the Bible literally because we're reading it as it was intended. Exactly. Not exactly. just the surface the of surface what the words mean yeah. to me. Exactly. Exactly. I was telling Alan before I got here, just some of the abuses that I read on Facebook with, with people just kind of pulling out scripture without really thinking about where they come from to sit, even to fit their own uses. And I think the one, the one that today that was a woman who put this on her son's gravestone and the son had died by suicide. And it was, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Mm. And I just, Oh my gosh, that's cringeworthy. It's just cringeworthy. And, and, um, on so many levels. And I thought, what I, wow. You know, where do you even go? And of course no one would ever say anything, about it. It's just going to be there in perpetuity on that gravestone, right. but it's not the, uh, not the intent. <laughs> so, so when I was, uh, um, you know, when I was in college, I was a Bible and New Testament Greek major. And I had come to, from this little Baptist church in a little town in Texas. And I'd gone to this little Baptist school in West Texas. And, um, but, but I had some really good teachers there and learned, was learning, you know, mm-hmm. some proper biblical interpretation. I went back home and there was a revival there. And this guy was preaching on 
You cannot plunder a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man. And so the, the gist of his sermon was, God is a strong man. Jesus is a strong man. Satan is a strong man. And the pastor is a strong man. And if the pastor is bound in the church, then Satan is the strong man in the church. <laughs> okay. So, you know, and afterwards, one of my good friends that I grew up with, wonderful man, wonderful Christian man, said, wasn't that great? <laughs> I just kind of had to say, I just, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> that was oh, kind of wow. speechless. But, you know, I mean, so many problems with that, you know. So the Trinity is God, the Father, Jesus, and Satan. What happens to the Spirit, right? Wow. And, and, and that, the, that the pastor is a strong man, that the pastor is bound, Satan is the strong man in the church. This is just, I mean, and this is, again, an example of people, someone taking a passage and just totally importing some oh, frame wow. of mind, some mindset or, or, or worldview into it that is totally foreign to wow. the Bible and even sound Christian theology because, you know, we're, where's the Trinity in that, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, and I, again, I think this passage particularly has been ripe for that. And, and I, I think you're right. I, I love Calvin. I respect Calvin, but I think he fell into the, into the pit oh. of, fell into the trap of, of, of seeing this as advocating yeah. Jesus is advocating hell as a place of right. eternal punishment right. for the wicked dead. Well, again, he is a man of his time and he does think, I, I mean, I am hoping people are gaining from this, that Calvin is not just how he's necessarily portrayed, that this was a, a man doing pretty sophisticated exegetical work. Wow. However, absolutely. However, he was a man of his time. Yes. He is limited. And so for these, there's some of these traditions that want to go back and, and, and elevate Calvin to a God status and, and don't do that. He's a man of his times. And mm. I think, I hope we're learning that, but I also hope you learn that he's deeper than um, many of these folks give him credit on the surface. So these people right. that are like, oh, I don't want to be Presbyterian because he's, Calvin. He's deeper than the quote unquote five points of Calvinism. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm hoping that you're starting to learn that from mm -hmm. our discussion of Calvin. Um, well, you kind of have to read Calvin in the same way. You know, you have to interpret it in light of his context. Uh, you have to interpret him in light of his context. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think we're learning that. And I think it's a, I think it's a warning for us as we move forward to today. We have mm -hmm. to really think about our modern context, our, our postmodern context as we look at scripture and, yeah. and understand how it guides us. You know, um, when I started each class at the seminary, you know, the first part of my syllabus was that basically this class is intended to fulfill the instruction um, to do your best to show yourselves as a workman who rightly um, handles the word of truth. And, and that, was, mm -hmm. that was what we were about there. We want to rightly handle, right. we want to rightly interpret the, the word of, the, you know, the Bible. Right. And we want to be faithful about that and do everything we can in our power to understand it. And I mean, that's what this podcast is about. That's what, you know, that's what, that's what, um, sound biblical exegesis is exactly. about is that we're seeking to be faithful interpreters of the word of God. Uh, you know, I can look back on my career and, and see, and look at sermons I've preached in the past and think, boy, did I miss it then? Right. But, uh, you know, I think it's not so much whether or not we get it right every time. I think it's the matter that we are, we are sincerely doing our best to be faithful right. interpreters of yeah, scripture. I agree. I agree. And not just 
well, this is what it says to me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that's a, a good thing. As, and today's, what's exciting today is I think we've now got some new insight to passage that really probably stumps almost all of us. Yeah, I would agree. And, um, and I think that's going to be helpful for your preparation. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.